Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. These concerns regularly bring us to examine core features of capitalism in the 21st century. Today, we turn to a recent book titled Still Broke, Walmart's Remarkable Transformation and the Limits of Socially Conscious Capitalism. The book's author, Rick Wartsman, worked for two decades as a reporter, editor, and columnist at the Wall Street Journal and Los Angeles Times. While business editor of the LA Times, he helped guide a three-part series on Walmart's impact on the economy, which won the 2004 Pulitzer for national reporting. In this episode of Reinventing Solidarity, New Labor Forum consulting editor, Ruth Milkman interviews Wartsman about the nation's largest employer's decade-long effort at self-transformation in response to ubiquitous and searing criticism. As a result of reforms at Walmart, the average worker now earns an hourly wage of just above $17 an hour, and while this exceeds the minimum wage, it still means that the average full-time Walmart worker earns not quite $32,000 a year. Here, Milkman and Wartsman explore what this and other not-so-transformative remedies suggest about the limits of so-called socially conscious capitalism. I'm very pleased to welcome Rick Wartsman to this New Labor Forum event to discuss his new book, his fifth book, published at the end of last year called Still Broke, Walmart's Remarkable Transformation and the Limits of Socially Conscious Capitalism. So turning to the book, and thank you for being here, Rick. Today, as I think everyone would agree, the behemoth corporation that progressives love to hate is not Walmart. It's Amazon. But for many of the same reasons that in the recent past that we had strong animus around Walmart. Among other things, both these companies have been criticized by many, many people for treating their workers poorly, for their intransigent anti-unionism, for undercutting small businesses, you know, by using their market power to cut prices to the point where the competition goes away. So not very long ago, and certainly at the time that LA Times series appeared back in 2003, it was Walmart that everybody worried about and focused on and, you know, put energy into fighting. I also remember a film, some people listening might remember this film from 2005 by Robert Greenwald called The High Cost of Low Price. There were many exposés of Walmart in books, articles, both popular and academic. So this new book documents the history of Walmart's 
transformation over the last decade or so, well, more like 15 years, I guess, the way you tell it, into a company that has a plausible, if not totally persuasive claim to being socially responsible, or as the subtitle of the book puts it, part of socially conscious capitalism, quote unquote. No one would deny that Walmart remains viciously anti-union, and I'll definitely return to that in a minute. But that, of course, does not distinguish it from any other major U.S. corporation. I mean, that's kind of how it is nowadays. So Walmart remains the nation's biggest private employer, although Amazon is catching up. It has not done so yet. And you mentioned their rivalry at one point in the book and current CEO Doug McMillan's making all the Walmart executive team read the Everything Store, this early book about how Amazon got its stripes or whatever. And you also credit McMillan with the wage bumps of the mid-2010s, which we'll come back to. Walmart currently boasts that its average wage for its hourly workers is $17 an hour. Of course, that's an average, which can be misleading. But the minimum it pays today is $12 an hour, if I'm up to date. And um, that's a lot higher than the minimum wage in many of the places where Walmart stores are located, $7.25. The argument of the book, as I understand it, is that while things have changed quite significantly at Walmart, the change is far from sufficient, hence the title of the book, Still Broke. Still Broke as in, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, but it is broke. Hmm. Um, so you, as I read it, you trace the origins of this change back to about 2005, almost 20 years ago, actually. I misspoke earlier, when um, Katrina hit New Orleans and then hmm. CEO Lee Scott decided to use the company's vast capacity to help supply the victims of Katrina with water and a bunch of other necessities at a time when the federal government was legendarily incompetent to meet the need. And that they got a lot of points for that. But my first question is, apart from this particular moment of opportunity to create some goodwill with the public, which this definitely did, why did Walmart embark on this larger effort that you document to embrace what you call socially conscious capitalism? Um, eventually launching all kinds of environmental initiatives and raising pay for its workers. What is behind this? Why did they do it? If we could start with that. Sure. So I think it's a confluence of things, actually. So some of it, particularly in the early days, so if you go back to 2005, and Katrina really was this kind of pivotal moment in the company's history. Some of this, like all companies, they mythologize the story a little bit and sort of takes on this larger than life quality. But I do think something significant happened and the company that had been and was being so vilified for its scale, its size, right? You know, the curse of bigness, you know, right? And of business. And, and, you know, it suddenly used this vastness, this logistics expertise and this giant logistics network it had to, as you said, deliver essential medicines and water and, and food and other supplies to this devastated region of, of the country in the Gulf Coast around New Orleans and so on, and got a lot of credit. And, and Lee Scott gave this kind of pivotal speech, and it was I think the first time a CEO had ever delivered an address, not only to his whole executive team, but to every, what they call associates, you know, every frontline worker in the stores, every store, this was, you know, broadcast to everyone. And basically he said, look, we get beat up all the time for our size. Katrina was a case where we were praised because we were able to leverage our size for good. How could we do this every day? What would it take for Walmart to do this every day? Would, what would it mean if we could do this every day? And, and, I, and I think there was some you know, real sincerity to it. I mean, look, some of it was for PR reasons, 
but PR reasons that were also turning into you know business problems. Lee Scott and every CEO since has wanted to, well, being true to Walmart's base customer, right? People who are looking for low cost goods, low priced items, because maybe they're you know on fixed incomes or really tight budgets themselves. At some point, right, Walmart needs to grow by expanding its customer base and kind of moving without alienating those traditional customers, you know, getting to kind of more upscale customer. And they part of that plan was to go into urban markets, right? Lee Scott was trying to enter New York and other urban markets. The unions were making that difficult. Others were, you know, politicians were making that difficult because of Walmart's reputation. This was a chance to turn that around. And so I think early on, there was some PR involved, but PR for, you know, not just to feel good, but for real business reasons. And this was also a time where right around the same period, two unions began to wage, you know, these incredible campaigns, these corporate campaigns against Walmart. And we can we can get into that. Um, but Walmart also needed to, to combat that. Um, and so, you know, it turned to environmental stuff first and and you know has by all accounts while far from perfect made a lot of strides in being a greener company a more sustainable company the environmental defense fund conservation international other large mainstream environmental groups would tell you while not perfect walmart is really genuinely a sustainability leader at this point among at least large corporations they began to give away food to food banks and at this point have given away billions of pounds of food they have a major initiative with Feeding America that is really important and great. They lowered the price of prescription drugs. They were instrumental in Michelle Obama's, you know, healthier eating, you know, healthier foods campaign, really taking lots of sugar and salt out of items on their shelves and fats and so on. And, and so did a lot of good. The last place they came to, because I think it's the one that was so directly antithetical to their fundamental business model, was to invest in workers. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, we'll talk more about the investment in workers in a bit. So you talked a little bit about what did change, the all the things you just listed, the environmental stuff, the food involvement, and so on. So why is it still broke? What did they fail to change? Tell us more about the thinking behind your title. Yeah. So, I mean, the title, which they hate, of course, and, I, and, and to their credit, look, and there's a whole backstory to this too, but Walmart let me inside in a way that they have not let you know, many, if any, journalists. And I actually give them a lot of credit as a company, way more than most big companies for engaging with their critics, of which I have been one for a long time. You know, in full disclosure that I wrestle with this in the book, when I was at the Drucker Institute, which you mentioned, you know, we did a pioneer to lifelong learning initiative there, and they were one of the seed funders. And I was really surprised because I had been such a longtime critic, and they clearly knew who I was, that Walmart was giving the Institute where, I, you know, which I was leading, any funding whatsoever. I literally thought, hey, maybe they're trying to buy me off or something like that. That would not be unheard of. And but they turned out to be really good partners on this project. And, you know, this was their corporate philanthropy. I got to meet a bunch of Walmart executives I had never met, you know, as a journalist. Certainly when I was at the LA Times, I had this was a different relationship. And so I got to see inside and I actually pitched them and I said, look, I want to come and tell your story. Something interesting is going on here. I knew they had started to raise wages in 2015. I knew they had, you know, followed the company enough to know they had they had made these changes and become a greener company. You know, what was going on? Why were they doing it? Was it strictly PR? Was it business operation reasons? Was it because of outside pressure? Like, why, why were they doing this? What did it add up to? And I pitched them and I said, 
look, I don't think you're getting your due for the strides you've taken, particularly your investment in workers, raising wages and so on. And I want to tell that story. And who better to tell it, by the way, than one of your longtime critics? So let me inside. But if I do this, I am going to need full access. And I'm also not going to pull any punches. I'm going to talk to all your critics. I'm going to talk to the unions. I'm going to talk to United for Respect, the right labor advocacy group that spun out of the Food and Commercial Workers Union. I'm going to talk to Bernie Sanders' office. I'm going to, you know, talk to talk to everyone who still thinks you have a long way to go. And I'm going to come to my own truth. And that truth is still broke. So I think the title refers to three things. One is that, you know, their workers are still broke. So after all the change, and we can talk about, you know, what the change is actually entailed, you know, to cut to the chase, the average Walmart worker still makes less than $29,000 a year. And I say average because you can actually calculate that, or I could calculate that based on figures they gave me. So they would not tell me the median wage for their U.S. workers. But I think given that the median tends to skew lower, it's fair to say that more than half of their 1.6 million U.S. workers, so you're talking 800,000 or more U.S. workers don't make even $29,000 a year after all the steps they've taken. So they're still broke. In that way, Walmart, for all the strides it's taken, is still broken. It hasn't fixed this problem of providing a living wage to its workers. And then this title really refers to, I think, a whole system that's broken, that we live in a country that is really, I think, suffering from a wage crisis. Walmart is both a source of the problem as the biggest employer in the country and as such a standard setter, but is also a symbol of a much bigger problem of tens of millions of workers who you know, get up every day, go on the job, work hard, and then often, if it's not every month, are certainly in danger and all too many times find themselves struggling and making these terrible trade-offs, right, that we know about by all the surveying between, you know, paying for food or medicine or heating their homes or making rent. These are people who are workers, you know, they're they're working and often either they are making those terrible trade-offs and or relying on public assistance just to scrape by. And so the system's broken, Walmart's broken, and certainly their workers are still broke. So one thing you mentioned as part of the explanation, I just want to return to since it's a particular interest to us here in the labor school, you tell the history of the both the, the two corporate campaigns that you already mentioned, Walmart Watch, which was funded by SEIU, and yeah. the UFCW's Wake Up Walmart campaign, and that both of those followed earlier efforts to actually do conventional union organizing at Walmart, efforts that were strenuously resisted by Walmart and failed miserably. And the UFCW put enormous amounts of resources into that effort to organize, you know, what was and still is the biggest employer in the private sector in the country and one that they saw as undercutting their long unionized supermarket base and so on. And it was a disaster. They got nowhere. And so then they turned to what um, one of the people you quote in the book called the air war, which, you know, from the, they abandoned (laughs) ground war and started doing propaganda campaigns criticizing Walmart. And first it was the UFCW, I guess, and then SEIU got into the act. They were, they were right at the same time. They each claim credit for having thought of this idea. So. so they defeated unionization efforts on the ground 
And maybe, I think you sort of hinted at this earlier in your comments, maybe some of the changes that they then began to implement were an effort to nail the coffin of the unions in the air war as well. Like here, they had this challenge that they were, and because these campaigns were, um, did have an impact. They reached a lot of people and Walmart developed a very bad reputation, right? And especially among progressives, but to some extent, in the wider public, even including their longtime customer base. So one explanation for this is that the unions are sort of get some of the credit. Is that, Do you think that's true or what? How do you look at that whole question? When you cut to 2015, when for the first time Walmart raised its starting pay, you know, across the company, obviously, look, starting wages at Walmart in 2015 weren't the same as when Sam Walton ran the stores in the 60s. The market had bid up wages over time and minimum wage laws, even, even very slowly at the federal level, but even at state and local level, right, wages had, had gone up. But they had never instituted an across the board wage increase. So why did they do it? I think it was a whole bunch of factors. There was pressure from the unions for sure. And those early campaigns were the start of it, right? In 2005, 2006, 2007, they were brutal. I mean, they were genius. Both the SEIU and the UFCW went out. They hired a bunch of mostly very young political operatives who had worked a lot on the, the early digital sides of presidential campaigns, right? Howard Dean's campaign and others and, and John Kerry's campaign and so on. And they they brought those folks in and they were extremely creative and clever and great at leaking damaging stuff to the media. And yeah, the effect was huge. Again, particularly as Walmart was trying to reach some more upscale customers, expand into urban areas. This had a real detrimental effect on their ability to do those things. Lee Scott, the then CEO, I think kind of paraphrasing, but called it, you know, something like the most sophisticated, you know, relentless corporate campaigns, because they weren't done in concert. They were separate but simultaneous ever wage. And I don't think that was hyperbole. I think, yes, I'd give the unions in those campaigns some credit for putting Walmart down this path. There were other outside pressure points, right? And actors who applied pressure to Walmart. So you also had, in addition to the unions, um, and we should mention that our Walmart, now United for Respect, spun out of the food and commercial workers. And this was a campaign that wasn't trying and has is not trying to you know reach collective bargaining with the company but is a way for workers to organize and have collective voice and some measure of power and try and make change but outside of a the traditional collective bargaining structure and so they certainly kept up in a way it was a replay of those earlier corporate campaigns well one other note by the way for your audience i think this is really interesting so the two campaigns the USCW's campaign, Wake Up Walmart, the goal there, if you talk to Joe Hansen, the then president of the union, was to soften up Walmart enough in the in its public image and to, to give them, sully them enough in, in their public standing that it would force them to the bargaining table. At that point, their hope was still that Walmart would come to the bargaining table, at least in some of the urban markets where maybe they'd agree to the prevailing wage that the USCW had negotiated with some of the supermarket chains. The SEIU, they weren't trying, I mean, if you believe Andy Stern, they weren't trying to encroach on the USCW's turf and steal members or things like that. They just said, this is the biggest company in America. They represent everything wrong with corporate America. We want to sully their image because it's a way to sully all of corporate America. And to really point to the fact that corporate America writ large is not paying so many frontline workers a sufficient wage. They are not providing adequate access to health care, right? And, and so on. And so 
Andy had kind of a different aim. Those campaigns are Walmart, politicians like Bernie Sanders and others who continue to take on Walmart, the interfaith community, the interfaith center on corporate responsibility, which Walmart is kind of a religious streak in Bentonville, Arkansas, and they listen to the nuns, right? The nuns come in and complain about how they're paying and taking on other issues. And they were a point of pressure. Journalists, right? Like myself, you know, pains with a pen, right? Who are coming after them. And, and it took about 10 years from Katrina to 2015 to finally do the wage part of being more socially responsible in, to the degree they've, they've done any of it. But I think the biggest reason they moved on wages at all was actually a business imperative. By 20... 11, there's some evidence, certainly by 2013, they had cut labor costs so deeply and were holding down labor costs so much to keep profits where they wanted them that turnover had reached just even for retail, like epidemic proportions, right? I've heard it's, it was as high as 200%. Some stores, I, there's an anecdote in the book of an executive going into a store and the turnover was 400%, right? So, you know, completely just unsustainable as a business. And what that does is it means shelves aren't stocked properly. So they had empty shelves. Stores were dirty, right? That same executive who told me about the 400% turnover went into a store looked down and asked her colleague, oh, when did we switch to the brown floor tiles? And he said, those aren't floor tiles, that's dirt, right? The stores were dirty, it was a mess. And as a result, Walmart's sales, their same store sales were declining quarter after quarter. And so Doug McMillan, then a new CEO came in and knew he had to make some investments in their workforce, including in pay, or the business was just gonna be run into the ground. And so I think it was all those pressure points public image, all those things, inside change agents, outside pressure, but also really just a, a business need. Thank you. I want to come back to the Our Walmart effort, which if I remember correctly, was launched in 2010, mm -hmm. uh, a little bit before the Occupy Wall Street and the Fight for 15, which had a very similar kind of energy. Yep. And originally it was, I think it was the UFCW funded it pretty generously for about five years. And then- just when, maybe not coincidentally, just when Walmart announced its first effort to raise the, its own minimum wage to $10 an hour is when UFCW kind of pulled the plug and it morphed into, what is it called then? United for Respect. Yeah, that's what it is today. Which yeah. is a more independent thing, you know, with, with much less in the way of resources. Well, so you already said, I guess you sort of answered this, that they, that also had an impact, like the earlier corporate oh. And yep. why did they switch? Like, why did they abandon the earlier efforts, which they did do around just before all, our Walmart was launched? Why did the UFCW? Abandon? Yeah, what made them change? Because the difference was it wasn't just an air war. They did try to get rank and file workers involved in our Walmart. That was the idea. Like you said, it wasn't, they'd given up on the idea of actually winning collective bargaining rights. Right. But they did, it was like what we call alt labor or worker center yes. efforts in that. Or like the fight for 15 that SEIU did in the fast food industry, where the demand was $15 an hour in a union, but they never got anywhere close to the union. They did get dollars in a lot of places. So can you just talk a little bit more about that transition from the earlier corporate campaigns to this approach? And also, why did, did they pull the plug because they thought they were calling victory because of this $10? No, I don't, I don't think so. My, my understanding is that there was some 
tension inside and largely a new regime after Johansson left that came in and looked at the amount they were spending on the campaign. And although obviously you could say they had a effect on ultimately wages, that base wage being raised and wages, you know, going up at Walmart and other and some other improvements and parental leave policy that ultimately got put in and some things like that, some better health care benefits. The one thing the union was not getting were dues paying members out of this. And so at some point I think it's a matter of resources and you know that's a strategic question and a financial strategic question for a union so that, that's my understanding okay i mean i was thinking reading your book about the lasting effect of walmart's success in defeating the unions first on the ground then you know they kind of give up all these other efforts ultimately as you know like you said not paying off essentially, not not sustainable given that nothing's coming in in terms of union dues or membership or anything. And I wonder if that has impacted the reluctance of UFCW and other large unions to make a comparably large-scale effort like they did attempt at Walmart to organize the new behemoth Amazon. They've been notably uninvolved in that. I mean, the Alabama campaign, that is a UFCW affiliate here in New York, the RWDSU that took that one on at the right. request of the workers right. there. Of course, the Staten Island thing is an independent union. Right. And I don't know. It seems possible that part of why they're not interested is they feel like they tried this and they got burned so badly they're not going to do it. They're not going to make the same mistake twice or something. I wonder what you think about that possibility. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a possibility. Look, I'm not so close to the current UFCW executive team to really say with any confidence. What I would say is this, that that I think generally you're really onto something. And I think this is true for the UFCW and every union in some ways, again, by and large, organized labor had an amazing year last year, right? You know, organizing activity was up the, the number of filings, right, with, with the NLRB to call elections and strike activity, you know, by every measure and some historic wins, right? And including with the, you know, JFK 8, right? The the Amazon Workers Union. But I think what you're seeing, not only, you know, in the face of all those, you know, victories and that momentum is Amazon, Starbucks, all these other companies, what are they doing? They're using the Walmart playbook. Mm -hmm. This is the playbook that Walmart wrote. This is the playbook. And, and back to Sam Walton's time, right? And, and he borrowed it. It's a playbook. John Tate was his union consultant who helped write the playbook in the 1930s and brought it to Walmart in the 1960s. And what does this look like, right? Ruth, you know better than I. This looks like you surveil union activists, you fire them, right? You, you target them, you, you close locations that are, you know, trying to be or organized for any pretense, whether it's plumbing issues or sales were too slow in that store. And that's the one you close down of all the stores, whatever it is, if somehow there's a agreement one and at Walmart, it was only one in the U S in one tiny group of meat cutters, you know, in Texas that ever won anything. And then you don't come to the bargaining table in good faith. Right. And so, and eventually, you know, goes away. And if you're fined, which Walmart has been a ton, right. By the NLRB, the costs are minimal and there's, you know, the financial costs, the press damage is even pretty minimal and the actual hard costs, certainly compared to going to the bargaining table and negotiating a union contract are nothing. And so I think what you're seeing is you're seeing Amazon, you're seeing Howard Schultz and Starbucks, you're seeing company after company. When I look at that, I go, oh, that's the Walmart playbook. 
No, I agree completely. And yeah, I mean, in some ways, the efforts have gone further at those at places like Amazon and Starbucks. And I have some ideas about why that is, but that's kind of off our topic for tonight than they ever got at Walmart. They have in some ways, you know, even though it's modest and has never come to scale and the companies are fighting back tooth and nail, they've gotten a little bit further along, but not from UFCW's resources, from a very different route. So I wanted to turn briefly to the pandemic, which for Walmart was a profit bonanza as it was for Amazon and and many other big companies, despite the supply chain problems. And of course, Walmart is famous for having mastered that whole system, but it kind of faltered to put it mildly during the pandemic. And they did have, as you mentioned, like some organizational bumps and profitability problems in the 2010s. But in a way, the pandemic plus the initiatives they took, of course, to try to fix them internally, like turned that around completely. And they had this a couple of very, very good years. And then for a while, both Walmart and Amazon paid cash bonuses to their hourly workers. We all know about this. The, I think at Walmart, it was called thank you pay. Right. Although that went away toward, um, I believe, in late 2021 or so. So could you just talk a little bit about the pandemic and its effect on all this and how that fits your story or doesn't? Yeah, I think it fits the story both at Walmart and broadly. So, right, thank you pay or what some companies called hero pay. There are two ways to look at this. And so the Walmart way, and this is how my book opens. I was actually on a webinar listening to some Walmart executives talk very, you know, sincerely, I think, I, again, I, I, don't, I don't think these are bad people, you know, inherently. And, and, I, and I think they are, you know, they want to treat their workers well. And in their own minds, they've come a very long way. And so they would talk about all the steps they took to make their workers safer who had to come in these right essential workers and, you know, be in their grocery stores and, you know, in their pharmacies and, and so on and in their stores, you know, and they took a bunch of steps or sneeze guards at the cashier station or, you know, decals on the floor to keep people six feet apart and all these steps. And then they paid them more. And, and you know, I can't remember the total figure, but, it, you know, some, you know, billions of dollars, right, or hundreds of millions of dollars for sure in, in pay, right? And you sort of listen to those aggregate figures. And when you have one point, you know, more than a million and a half frontline U.S. workers, the numbers add up pretty fast and you get to hundreds of millions or, you know, of dollars. It was, I'm sure it's hundreds of millions. Because then when you sit back and you go, well, what did the actual, what did an actual worker get? And it turned out, you know, for, I think a full-time worker was a $300 check. And it's like, that's great, but that's not life altering. It's not enough to make you, I think, want to come into an environment that didn't feel safe. They put in some, some ways for people to take leave, but it was up for, it was like for two weeks if they got sick. If it was beyond that, though, again, the workers, their lives are so financially precarious, but then they're making those decisions. Do I go in and endanger myself and those around me, my fellow employees, my customers, because I don't feel great, right, if I can get into work? Or do I stay home, which is probably the right thing to do, but then I'm not going to get hours and then I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent. And so, again, Walmart would tell one story and there's a truth to it and the numbers sound big. And then when you get down to the individual level, it's a very different picture. The other thing I would mention is around worker voice. So Walmart, like a lot of companies, if you talk to them, they would say, we really understand what our workers want and need. We, we really listen to their voices. Well, how do you do that? Well, we have an open door policy. Anyone can go into their manager. You can escalate that all the way up to Doug McMillan, the CEO, right? We can, you can, you could go see him if make an appointment if you, you know, if you needed to and so on. We do constant pulse surveys of all of our workers. You know, we're really on top of what they think and feel. Obviously, that is no substitute for genuine worker voice and actual worker voice and the people who are closest to your customers 
in, in how the business is, is organized, how it's managed, what their jobs are actually like and how they should be composed and, and the work they do, the standards they operate under and so on. And so, you know, they're United for Respect actually put something on the on the proxy ballot, right? And took to the annual shareholders meeting and said, we want to form a workers council that is a COVID pandemic advisory council. Because there were, you know, some workers who were getting sick and I don't think it was inordinate compared to the overall population or whatever. Walmart's like a city, right? 1.5 million people. So sure, some people got sick. So I'm sure some people died because of COVID in that population. They said, look, we, we want our voice and just that's all this is about is setting health policy with the company. And that was roundly rejected. And so I think it's another way that, again, and it's not just Walmart, it's far from Walmart. Companies tell themselves, we're really doing right by our workers. We're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on hero pay or thank you pay. You get down to the individual level, it's a few hundred bucks. Same thing. We do a lot on worker voice, open door, surveying, we're in touch, but really they don't want too much direct worker voice. I you got to look, you got to really investigate these these claims. Well, that's the anti-union animus's reason for being, of course, right? That they don't want the so-called third party in the room helping amplify those voices. You know, you quote the book about our Walmart by Adam Reich and Peter Bierman, in which uh -huh. they find that actually a lot of workers are not, ordinary workers are not so critical Walmart that they, you know, they're, they may not be thrilled to work there, but it's better than their alternatives that they have mm -hmm. very few options in life and Walmart is a live option. So as they point out, there, there definitely is a group that, and that's who is part of United for Respect, right? Who are very unhappy and vocal about it, but maybe for the majority of rank and file workers, again, given very, very, a very limited menu of options. This yep. isn't terrible as many of the critics suggest. Could you just say a little bit more about that? Why that might yeah, be? I think it's a really great point and an important one. So to me, it speaks to several things. So first of all, one is just Walmart scale. So, so you know, people ask me all the time, ooh, do people like working at Walmart? I'm like, again, it's 1.5, you know, 1.6 million workers. So it's like plunging into a city with 1.6 million people and going like, do you like it here? Are you, are you happy? I mean, it's the vastness of the company makes it pretty hard to, to generalize. And there are lots of different experiences. There are a lot of different people who are there for different reasons. People who want part-time hours because they're in school or they're an older worker who just, they're bored and they want to go back and make some, you know, pocket money or whatever. And they're perfectly happy. There are many workers. And I would actually say as vocal as the United for Respect members are, part of the whole idea of the group was they were looking for people who actually took pride in their job in Walmart. And many really like their customers and, and serving them and take pride in what they do as individual workers. And these are often the United for Respect members have been in, at Walmart for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years or more. They do actually find a value in the company. And then the company has improved jobs. I didn't compose the sub part of the subtitle of my book, Walmart's Remarkable Transformation given their history, given where they started in their own context, they've come up, they've done a lot. And we can talk about how and why they fall short, but they deserve some credit. So it, it is very mixed picture. And I think the point that people don't have a lot of alternatives, again, speaks to this other larger point of the book, which is that we as a country, as a society, right, as a polity, we have created a, just an army of low paid workers 
who serve us, whether it's serve us food or the work you're doing, take, take care of us and take care of our most loved ones and, you know, teach us and, you know, do all kinds of, right, do all kinds of jobs and can barely make ends meet with what they're paid. And so the alternatives, if I leave Walmart, where do I go? To Starbucks and I'm going to make, I'm not going to make 15 bucks an hour there. Or do I go to Amazon and yeah, they pay 15, but man, that's super creepy because they're monitoring every movement I make in the warehouse and it's, they're going to break my back in two weeks. And it, it isn't just Walmart. We've created an economy full of jobs. I estimate it's somewhere between 25 and 40% of the labor force. So what, 40 to 65 million people who are really struggling to make ends meet after going to work. Mm-hmm. That is a huge crisis in my view. And again, it leaves people without alternative. Right. Well, and so you point out toward the end of the book that the companies are only going to do so much without push from law, public policy, government, that there's, you know, they've done some change. They've made some changes, as you say, but there's a long way to go. And and we have this country with, like you just said, many working people who don't earn a living wage, inequality skyrocketing, labor law broken. Could you say a little bit more about what it would take? Yeah. So look, I, this is kind of the where I came out at the end of Still Broke. And it points to the limits of socially conscious capitalism. The problem isn't that, you know, right? People you say, oh, Walmart's the evil empire or whatever. The problem isn't at least now that Walmart's evil. The problem is that this is what, you know, socially conscious capitalism has come to look like for a big retailer. And And so, and we as a society have accepted that as good or good enough. And in fact, you know, Walmart in many quarters is now praised as, right, having done the right thing. And, you know, you can look at the sources, but they're on the change the world list, you know, from Fortune magazine for having raised wages, right? While politicians are just talking about raising the minimum wage, Walmart did it. And as you pointed out, they're way over the minimum wage now with their starting pay um, in a number of markets that they serve. And so I look at that and I say, the problem is that this is a company that's actually for business reasons, for PR reasons, for, you know, people trying to do the right thing reasons. I believe all of those are factors. But at the end of the day, even with all that, the average Walmart worker, more than half of their workers are not making $29,000 a year. They're not making a living wage. There are all too many still on you know, food stamps and Medicaid. There are all too many still struggling. And this is for a company that's trying. And mm-hmm. so what that said to me is not only Walmart, but corporate America overall will never go far enough fast enough on its own. And the only solution to this crisis is a government mandated living wage. I call for $20 an hour. I think that needs to be phased in. I'm not a fool. I don't think, you know, certainly... The current Congress is not about to do that. But I do think, you know, I do think that's what it's going to take is some kind of large government intervention. This is a crisis. We've dug a hole over 50 years of wage stagnation. And it's kind of to me like climate change. Like we can't, there's no time for incrementalism anymore. Thank you so much for Thank this you. very fascinating book and the conversation about it. And I hope whoever's listening will check out the book itself where you can learn in much more detail more about all this. So thank you so much, Rick. And I hope the book gets a big audience. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. And great to see you. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body 
grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. To subscribe to New Labor Forum and or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.